beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. As a Reformed Church, we believe that God grants us His grace in specific ways. There are specific means by which we may share in Christ and all His benefits. We call the manner in which we share in Christ the means of grace. The first and primary manner in which God communicates His grace to us is through the reading and preaching of His Word. Through the Word, the voice of the Good Shepherd is heard. It's heard as He admonishes, comforts, and instructs us. When the Word is faithfully proclaimed, we don't just hear the voice of the minister as he preaches. We accept what he says as being the Word of God. There's also a second way in which the Lord communicates His grace to us. It is through the administration of the sacraments. A baptism is administered as a sacrament of initiation. Through baptism, we are publicly admitted into God's covenant and church. Baptism is a visual reminder of how our gracious God approached us, how He claimed us as His own. The Lord's Supper is administered as a sacrament of nutrition. Christ blesses those who partake of the bread and wine in faith. He nourishes and refreshes our souls through His body, which was broken for us, and His blood, which was poured out for us. And for the Word and sacraments to be of benefit to us, we need to make use of them. The preaching of the gospel of Christ's words of life will not help you if you don't tune in and listen to the gospel message. The sacraments also will not help you if you don't partake of them. When Christ instituted the sacraments, he commanded that we use them. Christ sent the apostles to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Christ took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples, commanding, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Yet a question remains. Who are to partake in the Lord's Supper? When I ask the young people, they say, Well, those who have made public profession of their faith. And indeed, that's correct. For it's through the public profession of their faith that our young people gain admittance to the Lord's Supper. But another question arises. May all those who have made public profession of faith always attend the Lord's Supper? Lord's Day 30 teaches that there are times when we may need to withhold ourselves from attending and that there are circumstances where the elders may not permit some to attend. Because we do not want to eat and drink judgment on ourselves or to bring God's wrath against the whole congregation. So this afternoon we'll take a closer look at the standards God has set for coming to celebrate in His feast. I preach to you God's Word under the following theme. God's Word teaches us what's necessary to partake in the Lord's Supper. We need a biblical understanding of the sacrament, a true faith in our Savior Jesus Christ, and a godly lifestyle. Sometimes it's asked why question and answer 80 is part of Lord's Day 30. It doesn't really seem to fit. 
The rest of this Lord's Day is focused specifically on who is allowed to come to the Lord's table. Why was this question and answer added here? To answer this question, we need to know something about the history and the development of the Catechism. Question and answer 80 was not part of the first edition of the Catechism completed in 1561. It was an addition to the Catechism. The reason for this addition is clear from church history. When a Protestant Reformation broke away from Roman Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church held a council meeting at Trent, a city in northern Italy. The Council of Trent began to meet in December 1545, It was not finished until December 1563. From a doctrinal point of view, the Council of Trent remains the most important council in the history of Roman Catholicism. This council responded to the claims of the Protestant Reformation. It fixed the Roman Church's doctrines and practices over against the Protestant Church's. The doctrinal decisions of the Council of Trent can be divided into two parts. They include a decree outlining the Roman Church's doctrinal position. These include canons condemning the dissenting Protestant doctrinal positions. And the canons end with a sharp anathema. An anathema is a proclamation stating, Let them be accursed. Upon seeing the decisions of the Council of Trent, Elector Frederick III, who had commissioned the writing of the Catechism, instructed that an additional question and answer be written and inserted. He wanted to issue a solemn protest against the idolatry of the Roman Mass. It's important for us to realize that the doctrines established by the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent have not changed. They are in effect to this very day. The Roman Church teaches that there's a specific manner in which we share in Christ and His benefits. While we teach that the Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts through the preaching of the Gospel, the Roman Church disregards the importance of the preaching of the Gospel. While we teach that the Holy Spirit uses the sacraments to nourish and strengthen our faith, the Roman Church teaches that Christ's grace and a Spirit are applied to the Christian through the use of the sacraments. Now, if you were to ask a member of the Roman clergy, do you believe that Christ alone saves his people? He will say, yes, of course. And if you ask him, do you believe that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is sufficient to pay for our sins? He will say, most certainly we do. And yet the Roman church teaches that Christ's redeeming work cannot be applied to a sinner unless that person is baptized unless he or she partakes in the Mass, their form of the Lord's Supper. According to Catholic teaching, someone who has not been baptized has not been freed from the original sin they were born with and has not been infused with the grace of the Spirit. Thus, an unbaptized person cannot be saved and will not be able to enter heaven. The Catholic Church teaches that everyone has an obligation to go to Mass every Sunday. Unless you have a debilitating illness or there's an extremely bad weather that makes going to church unsafe, you're expected to attend. If you don't, you're deemed to have committed a mortal sin. 
That means you'll need to confess your sin to the priest, do penance, and ask the priest for absolution before you partake of the Mass again. And so, in the Roman Catholic Church, participating in the Mass is essential to sharing in Christ and His benefits. One of the great difficulties we have with the Roman Catholic perspective on the sacraments is that they become some kind of magical rite. The sacraments are no longer a means of nourishing and strengthening our faith in Jesus Christ. They're just something you need to do in order to be saved. If you've been baptized and at least somewhat regularly partake in the Mass, then everything's okay between you and God. Whether or not you have a living faith in Jesus Christ isn't really all that important. How you live your life doesn't seem to matter too much. As Reformed believers, we have a very different perspective on the sacraments. We believe that they've been given to us to strengthen and nourish our faith in Christ. In order for the Lord's Supper to truly benefit us, we need to know Jesus Christ and all He has done for us. It's not the eating of the bread and the drinking of the wine themselves that build us up in our faith. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he took bread and broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We need to remember and believe that Christ's body was broken and his blood poured out for us. If we don't remember and believe, the sacrament will not benefit us. There's also some specific difficulties we have with the Roman Catholic Mass. Instead of having a table, they have an altar. Instead of having a minister who distributes the bread and wine in the name of Christ, they have a priest who offers up Christ as a sacrifice. Instead of seeing the Lord's Supper as a meal of communion with Christ, they worship Christ as if he were physically present in the bread and wine. The basic error of the Roman church is that they believe that when the priest blesses the elements of bread and wine, they change into the real body and blood of Christ. The Roman church teaches that unless the sacrifice of Christ is repeatedly offered in the Mass, the atonement of Christ cannot be applied to the sinner. Beloved, that is not how we know Christ. Our reading from Hebrews 9 makes it clear Christ did not enter into heaven to offer himself up again and again. Like the high priest in the Old Covenant entered the most holy place each year to offer blood on the altar. The, auth the author of Hebrews makes it clear that if that were the case, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. Yet this is not what Christ did or does. Hebrews 9.28 says that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. We believe that Christ's once for all sacrifice was sufficient to pay for all our sins. There's a further error that results from the Roman Catholic doctrine that the bread and wine are changed into the real body and blood of Christ. They say Christ is physically present in the bread and wine. Thus you have the physical Christ before you on the altar and you may worship him there. That's why Catholics bow when they enter a church building, and again when they appear before the altar. We oppose this wrong teaching. For when Catholics bow down before the altar, 
Uh, they are guilty of worshiping the signs of Christ's body and blood. That's simply idolatry. We know Christ differently. In Acts 1, the disciples witnessed Christ's ascension into heaven. Hebrews 9.24 says that Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Thus, instead of worshiping the elements of bread and wine, we're to worship Christ himself, who with his body is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. We are to worship him as exalted and glorious King in heaven above. It's by knowing Christ and the mighty things that he has done for us and that he's still doing for us today that we derive benefit from the Lord's Supper. The bread and the wine that we eat and drink at the Lord's table are not some kind of magical potion. They do not in some mysterious way infuse us with God's grace. Christ is communicated to us when we eat and drink in faith. We deal with this further in our second point. God's Word teaches us that in order to partake in the Lord's Supper, we need a true faith in Jesus Christ. In order for us to partake in the Lord's Supper, it's necessary for us to examine ourselves. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 11 that self-examination is of critical importance in order to prevent us from eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. So it's important to understand what this self-examination is all about. In self-examination, we need to be clear about what questions to ask ourselves. Self-examination does not imply that we need to ask ourselves again and again if we're really God's children or if Christ has really died for us on the cross. Those are the wrong sorts of questions. Hasn't God established his covenant of grace with us? Has he not promised to be our father, to wash away our sins through Jesus Christ, to dwell in us by his spirit? God's promises are true and certain. We need not doubt what he has said. The focus does not need to be on God's promises themselves. Instead, the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Do I believe what God has said? That's at heart what our self-examination comes down to. In his word, God tells me that I am a sinful person. That by nature, my heart is corrupt. And I cannot keep his commandments. The question is, do I believe that? Can I accept that by nature I'm totally depraved, that the inclination of my heart is to do evil? Can I acknowledge that I come before God with empty hands, that in actual fact I'm not worthy of His grace? Beloved, the Catechism does not just ask us if we recognize ourselves as sinful people. The focus of question answer 81 is on whether or not we are truly displeased with us with ourselves, because of our sins? Is there sorrow for sin in our hearts? Is there a broken and contrite heart within us? Self-examination involves knowing our sins and being sorry for them. It involves confessing them by name before God, asking Him to forgive, asking God to help us by His Spirit to fight against our sins. 
In the second place, self-examination involves asking ourselves some questions about the redemption that Christ has worked for us. God has told us in his word that he sent his son into this world to pay for our sins. The scriptures testify to us that out of mere grace, God grants us the righteousness of Christ. So now the question is, do I accept this gracious gift? Do I believe the sure promise of God that all my sins are forgiven me for the sake of Christ's suffering and death? Finally, self-examination involves us asking some questions about our thankfulness. God has taught us in his word that by his, that his Holy Spirit will renew my heart so that more and more I live for him. He has taught us that we can know a tree by its fruits. He said that a living faith will be evident by its works. So now the question is this. Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in my life? Does my faith show forth in how I walk with God and my neighbor? Once again, our catechism gets to the heart of the matter. It asks, is there a desire within me more and more to strengthen my faith and amend my life? Self-examination involves looking at our conscience to see if we're living at peace with God and our neighbor. Does my life reflect a love for God and my neighbor? Is it my sincere desire to show true thankfulness to God for his grace? To live with my neighbor in love and unity? Beloved, the question of who can come to the table of the Lord is a very personal question. A question that each one of us needs to answer for him or herself. We need to be aware of two extremes. The one is that people feel completely unworthy to attend because they're such miserable sinners. To such, Christ says, Come, take by faith the body of the Lord and drink the blood of Christ for us outpoured. We don't attend the Lord's Supper because of who we are in and of ourselves. We come to the table to share in the blessings of our Savior. And there's also another extreme. There are those who come to the table because they feel that this is their right or because this is the expected thing to do. Even if there's great sin in their life which remains unconfessed before God. Even if they do not truly believe the promises of God. Even though their conscience accuses them that there's unresolved matter with a fellow brother or sister that needs to be sorted out. It's against such that Paul warns that whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment on themselves. This brings us to our final point, and it will see that to come to the Lord's table, we need a godly lifestyle. In question and answer 81, we spoke about our individual responsibility to examine ourselves before we came to the Lord's table. In question and answer 82, we focus on our communal responsibility to keep the table of the Lord holy. The question speaks about who are to be admitted to the table of the Lord. That term, admitted, indicates that not all who would of themselves come to the Lord's table should be allowed to do so. 
This question and answer make it clear that those who by their confession and life show that they're unbelieving and ungodly should not be allowed to come to the table of the Lord. As pastor, I've noticed that it's uncommon for members of the congregation to withhold themselves from the Lord's table. Occasionally, people do, mostly because they're involved in a dispute with another brother or sister which has not yet been been resolved. Yet it's become apparent to me that at times, members of the church have attended the Lord's Supper when they're living in sin. I didn't know about it at the time. Yet when their sin became known, it became clear that they continued to attend the Lord's Supper when they should not have done so. To some extent, it's understandable that someone living in sin attends the Lord's Supper. When we're living a sinful lifestyle, we try to hide it. Not attending the Lord's Supper would likely bring uncomfortable questions, either from family members or perhaps from the elders. Because we don't want to face those kinds of questions, we partake in the Lord's Supper pretending all is okay. Do you realize, beloved, that when you do that, you eat and drink judgment upon yourself? Do you realize that, in effect, you're challenging God to chastise you? If we understand the holiness of God, His hatred for sin and hypocrisy, we would not partake in the Lord's Supper to try cover up our sin. At times, a person's sin may be known to one or more members of the congregation. If so, they have the duty to warn such a person not to attend the Lord's Supper. According to the Lord's teaching in Matthew 18, if you know that your brother has sinned, you need to go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he doesn't listen, you need to take one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If your brother still does not listen, You need to report him to the elders of the church. Then it becomes their duty to withhold him from the Lord's Supper. Do you understand why this is really important? Because the Bible makes clear how the sin of an individual can have severe consequences for the well-being of the church. Consider the sin of Achan when the Israelites conquered Jericho. He took of the spoil that was devoted to the Lord. Because of his sin, when Israel went up against Ai in battle, they were defeated and some of their soldiers were killed. God's judgment rested on the congregation. Achan's sin needed to be rooted out before it infected the whole flock. It was not until Achan and his family were stoned that the Lord again bestowed his favor on his people. Now, you might be thinking that was the Old Testament. God doesn't deal with the church in the same way. Yet our reading from 1 Corinthians 11 teaches us differently. When the Corinthian church profaned the Lord's Supper, God brought sickness and death upon this church. Paul writes in verse 31, But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Beloved, we are our brother's keeper. We need to support and encourage each other in our walk with God. If someone you know is living in blatant and unrepentant sin, you have a responsibility to warn and admonish him or her. 
not just for their own sake, but for the upbuilding of the whole congregation. Beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ has instituted the Lord's Supper for the strengthening of our faith. It's intended to focus our attention on the great sacrifice by which Christ has delivered us from all our sins. Through the Lord's Supper, we're allowed to share in communion with Christ and with each other. There are so many blessings that we receive from the celebration of the Lord's Supper, as long as we use it properly. May God grant us His grace that we may live before Him in thankfulness and holiness. In this way, may God grant that instead of being a curse, the Lord's Supper may always be a blessing for us. Amen.